A very warm welcome to the Word Live podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Today we're going back to 2018 and our Bible readings given that year by Mike Kane. They were on Nehemiah and they point us to the great building project that God is doing in his world. I hope you find your heart thrilled with excitement as you see what we're called to be part of. So, over to Mike. I have a friend who used to be in the Royal Marines, and I cannot even begin to get my head around how tough you have to be to be in the Royal Marines. I was watching one of their promotional videos, and it's a kind of video of guys crawling through mud and running through streams, and all I can think is, oh, the chafing. This guy, he is now a pastor, and he, he said that being a pastor was harder than being in the Royal Marines. And I was like, yes! And I wanted it printed on T-shirts. Because serving the Lord is a joy, isn't it? Friends, we know that, don't we? To serve the Lord is our joy and our privilege. But there are times when it's really hard. And I don't know the particular way in which you are serving him. But I know that the Bible tells me that you will know that there are times when it's really hard. Perhaps a year ago, you moved the family to a a, a new estate to start a new church. Now you're wondering if you did the right thing. Or, Or at work, you've been standing for Christ but they give you such a hard time. Just, just thinking about going back to work next week is giving you a knot in your stomach. Or, or maybe you help with the children's work. And week in, week out, Saturday night, you're cutting out about 150 paper donkeys for the craft. Sunday morning, you're in the damp side hall, missing out on the teaching that's happening next door, and you're just, you're just worn out. And here we are on Word Alive, and some clown is giving four talks on the book of Nehemiah, and you are thinking, really? Is that going to help? Nehemiah? And we're not planning a building project. We haven't even got a building. Last summer, I started digging into the book of Nehemiah, and I wasn't really sure what to expect. It was a time when I, I was myself wondering, another 20 years pastoral ministry, really? And my experience was that through the book of Nehemiah, the Lord just renewed my strength to keep going and my joy in serving him. And my prayer is that that would be your experience this week. So before we open it up, let's pray as we sit. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that because you love us, You speak to us through your word. And we pray now that by your spirit, you would speak of your son. And we pray that what we hear of him would mend our hearts and give us strength to go on serving you with joy. And we pray that for the glory of your great name. Amen. 
Meg is going to come and read Nehemiah chapter 1. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then... Even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Thank you very much, Meg. Let's dive in. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, and we read the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year. 20th year of the Persian king Artaxerxes. That makes it 445 BC. And what that means is although Nehemiah is kind of tucked into the middle of our Bible, the action it describes is right at the end of Old Testament history. We'll come back to that. And notice we're in the citadel of Susa. That means we're in Babylonia, modern-day Iran. And Susa is a thousand miles from Jerusalem. But these are the words of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a Jewish name. What is Nehemiah doing in Susa, a thousand miles from Jerusalem? Well, 586 BC, so about 140 years before this. You remember the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar? He smashed up Jerusalem. He dragged the cream of Jewish society, people like Daniel, into captivity in Babylonia. They ended up in Susa. And then in 539, so about a hundred years before this, the Persians conquered the Babylonians and their king Cyrus said the Jews could go back home to Jerusalem. And some stayed here in Susa, others went back. Those are the people we read about. You see at the end of verse 2, the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They're the people who had gone back to Jerusalem to try and rebuild life and city there. 
And we know from the book of Ezra that just 13 years before this, Ezra had taken a group to Jerusalem to join in with that rebuilding of life in the city. And Nehemiah is itching to hear how they're getting on. And he hears news from Jerusalem, but the news is not good. Verse 3, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And what we're going to do is just notice three things Nehemiah does in response to that news. First, God's servant weeps for the glory of God. God's servant weeps. Remember, Nehemiah lives in Susa. Susa is a thousand miles from Jerusalem. He's he's probably a fourth or fifth generation immigrant. When he hears news from Jerusalem, he weeps. We read verse four. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted. His tears are the tears of someone in mourning. Why is he so upset? Why does he care about what happens in Jerusalem, a thousand miles away? The key is that word in verse 3, middle of verse 3, disgrace. Do you see? Back in the province, they are in great trouble and disgrace. And you say, why why do you think that's the key? Why do you think that's the key for for Nehemiah? Why do I say that? Well, if you flick on to chapter 2, verse 17, Nehemiah talks about the plan to go to Jerusalem and rebuild it. And do you see at the end of verse 17? And then we will no longer be in disgrace. Do you see? That's what's bothering him. That's what he wants to put right that they would no longer be in disgrace. We say, well, broken walls and burned gates obviously mean they are in trouble, but why disgrace? Well, the Lord's plan in the Old Testament was to show the world his glory, to show the world that he alone is the one true God worthy of the worship of all people. How is he going to do that? Through his people, Israel. He was going to build them up in Jerusalem, and then through these people in Jerusalem, he would reach out to the nations of the world. And as people trickled back to Jerusalem and started to rebuild the city, people like Nehemiah, they got their hopes up. Maybe this is it. Finally, after all the ups and downs of the Old Testament, this is God's plan coming together. Show the world his glory. But if the news is that the walls have been broken, that the gates were burned, what, what, what happens to God's plan? They said their, their God was the one true God who was going to reach out to all nations. It looks more like they're going to be wiped out by all nations. Did you see? Not just trouble but disgrace. Because the whole idea that 
They were a special people of a special God. That was, that was a joke, right? And, and Nehemiah can't bear that because he knows the Lord is not a joke. He knows the Lord is the God of heaven, sovereign over all nations. He knows how the Lord has unfolded his plans in history, how he saved his people from Egypt, how he led them through the wilderness, how he gave them a land, how he preserved them from being wiped out. He knows how the Lord has acted in history, kept his promises all down history, but now... What, is it, is it all just going to come to nothing? And so he weeps. And I'm very struck by his tears. Because mostly I weep when things don't work out for me. When my life is hard. When the people I love are in pain. When my name is slighted. That's the sort of stuff I care about. But Nehemiah cares about the glory of God. When it looks like God's plans to show the world his glory have come to nothing. When his people are disgraced, when his name is dishonored, it breaks Nehemiah's heart. In, uh, in Bristol, where I'm from, about 95% of people have no contact with any sort of a church. I guess you, you face a similar sort of situation. It means more and more people think of the God of the Bible as a joke, a sick and twisted joke. And the danger is that our response to the rise of the kind of secular threat to the church is to, to read books on culture and leadership and marketing and come up with a strategy. And it's all rather cool and calculating and rational and so I am very struck that Nehemiah's first response is to weep. William Booth, the, the founder of the Salvation Army, a couple of his people were trying to reach out to a particular city and they, they wrote back to him and they said, we've tried everything. All our ideas have failed. All our plans have fallen through. And he wrote back two words. Try tears. God's servant weeps for the glory of God. Secondly, God's servant prays for the glory of God. God's servant prays. In Ezra chapter 4, we learn that the, the person who's put a stop to this building work in Jerusalem was none other than King Artaxerxes, the mighty king of the vast and powerful Persian Empire. Well, what can we do? What can we do when we're up against a king like that? When the authorities say we're not allowed to preach the gospel, when we get into trouble for talking about Jesus at work, when the university won't let us run a mission on campus, when the council won't hire the community hall to us anymore because of what we believe, what can we do? We can pray. And when we pray, look at the God whom we turn to. Verse 5, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and 
awesome God. See, Nehemiah knows. He knows the future of Jerusalem is not in the hands of Artaxerxes. It's in the hands of the Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. And I think I know that. I know that we can pray, but when we are up against it, so often I catch myself thinking, if I was a half-decent leader, I'd come up with a plan to reassure people, to to, to impress people. And just to say, look, we're going to have to pray about this, it just sounds so lame. But the fact that Nehemiah prays shows that he sees things as they really are. Because the reality is, Nehemiah is very small. And he knows the king of Persia is way more powerful than he is. So if all he does is come up with a plan, he's not going to get very far. That's reality. And that's why he turns to the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. The God who holds kings and governments and bosses and student unions and local councils in his all-powerful hands. That's reality. You see, when we see how small we are, and then we see how great he is, prayer is not the the lame last resort because we couldn't think of anything else to do. It's the first move and the second move and the constant posture of the people of God. Because we are small There's nothing we can do, but he is great. So we turn to him. And what Nehemiah knows is this great and awesome God keeps his promises. You see in verse five, the Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him. His covenant of love, the promise he made that he would never give up on his people. And he's saying, our God is a great and awesome God who will never give up on his people. Oh, but Nehemiah is painfully aware of the ways in which his people have given up on him. They've not lived as his people. They've not loved him. They've not obeyed his commands. Do you see in verse um, 6, he says, "I, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We we have acted very wickedly toward you. We've not obeyed the commands, the decrees, and the laws you gave your servant Moses. Notice it's we, Israelites. He's not pointing the finger. It's them. They're the problem. It's us. It's me as well. And he knows he can't pray, Lord, look, Turn this round because that's what we deserve. After all we've been through, that's what we deserve. There's no sense of entitlement. The only prayer he can pray is, Lord, please act. Not because we deserve it, but because you have promised. Before we entered the land you gave us, before we settled in Jerusalem, you promised, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 64, that if we were unfaithful to you, you would scatter us. See, he says in verse 8, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. And he's saying, Lord, you kept that promise. 
And Nebuchadnezzar invaded and we were scattered among the nations. And that's why I'm in Susa. But, verse 9, you promised if you return to me and obey my commands, then even in your Even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. You promised, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 to 4, when we were in exile, if we turn back to you, you would gather us up and bring us home to the place where you dwell with your people, home to Jerusalem. And you kept that promise. You you gathered your people up from exile. You did. You took them back to Jerusalem. And he says, to the end of verse 10, they are in Jerusalem by your great strength, your mighty arm. You see, in power, you have acted. You have kept your promises. But now the king has stopped the rebuilding of the walls. Uh, Which means now your people are in danger of being wiped out. So what's Nehemiah going to pray? He prays in line with the promises of God. The Lord promised Jerusalem would be restored. That's what he promised. So that's his will. So that is what Nehemiah prays. And you notice that what, what fires him is not just the kind of safety of the people but the glory of God. You see in verse 11, he prays as one who delights in revering your name. He prays from a a heart that says, hallowed be your name. May the world see the truth of who you are. May your will be done. Your kingdom be done come. May your plans prevail. May Jerusalem be built, not just so the people would be safe, but so the world would see who you are and worship you as God. And that is why Nehemiah prays that the king would change his mind. You see verse 11, he prays, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. This man is the king, Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, the king who'd stopped the rebuilding of the wall. And I love the fact that Nehemiah calls him just this man. When you have been praying to the king of kings, the king of Persia, well, you see him for what he is. He's just this man. And Nehemiah's request is that the Lord would give him favor before this man that he'd get a chance to ask the king to change his mind and the king would listen. Friends, I am very struck by Nehemiah's prayer. Because when I pray, I, I, I tend to pray for what I want. Nehemiah prays for what God wants. And you say, well, how does anyone know? How does anyone know what God wants? Nehemiah's been reading his Bible, do you see? He's been tracing the plan of God through the Old Testament, looking at the promises of God. And those promises, the promises of God, show you God's heart, show you what he wants. 
And what happens is, is so often we're in our home group and we're, we're studying the Bible together and we're studying the Bible and the leader goes, oh, look at the time. We probably ought to get around to praying. And what do we do? We close our Bibles. And it's the saddest sound in Christendom. Because the Bible is what is on his heart. It's what he wants. And we close it and the danger is my prayers are all about what, what's on my heart, what I want. And friends, I think that's one of the reasons we're so disillusioned with prayer. Because we spend so much time praying for things he's not promised to give us. He's not promised to give us good health or a new job or a husband. See, we, we, we grow cynical. We just, he doesn't even answer prayer. He just, doesn't even care. But he hasn't promised to give me all the things that I want. But he has promised to bring glory to his name. Don't mishear this. Our Father in heaven cares very much for us, his children. And we are to go to him with the anxieties on our hearts. But in those anxieties, the heartbeat of the Christian is not just, Lord, give me what I want, heal me. The heartbeat of the Christian is, Lord, Lord, would you be glorified? That is what fuels our praying. Lord, bring glory to your name through a miracle of healing or through the miracle of giving me peace that points others to you and the hope that I have in Jesus. You see, but whatever, bring glory to your name. That is our longing. Prayers in line with his promises. Prayers for his glory. Those are the prayers God's people pray. And I don't feel that I pray like that very much. God's servant weeps. God's servant prays. And finally, God's servant takes action. For the glory of God. God's servant takes action. At the end of uh, chapter 1 verse 11, Nehemiah slips in. He's not just living in Susa. He is, do you see, cupbearer to the king. If you go to the British Museum, you can see cups from the court of Artaxerxes. Actual cups. It It gives you goosebumps. You sit there thinking, these could be the very cups that Nehemiah handled. It's amazing. It's brilliant. And it just brings home to you the fact that the Bible is not fairy stories. Nehemiah is not a fairy story. It's about events in history. The sort of events archaeologists dig up evidence for cups. And what I learned was that the cupbearer is a high-ranking official. He's the guy who tastes the wine before it's served to the king to check it's not been poisoned. In other words... The king has to be able to trust him. Which means Nehemiah is not just any old citizen of Susa. He is a man the king might listen to. So do you see, do you see what Nehemiah is thinking? He weeps, he prays, but it doesn't just end there. He doesn't just pray, Lord, may your plans prevail, and then settle back in front of Netflix. See, he realizes the Lord has put him in a position of influence cupbearer to the king he realizes that in God's plans he has a part to play he needs to take responsibility take action and so here he is taking action 
Chapter 2, verse 1, in the month of Nizan, in the 20th year. Oh, in the month of Nizan. Do you remember he started praying in the month of Kislev, which is like November, December. Now it's Nizan, which is like March, April. That is four months. Four months he has been mourning and fasting and praying, waiting for the Lord to give him an opportunity to act. Four months. And I'm thinking I would have prayed a quick prayer and if no opportunity came up in a a week or so, I think I'm off the hook. (laughs) Phew. But four months, Nehemiah perseveres in prayer because that's how much he cares for the glory of God. It's how much it matters to him. And then we read in the month of Nizan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king, and I'd not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. The king notices Nehemiah is not his usual self. He notices his sadness. And Nehemiah says, you see, I was very much afraid. I love his honesty. However much he knew in his head that God is great and awesome, oh, this is the moment of truth. His heart's pounding. He can hardly breathe because he's about to ask the king to change his mind. And the stakes are very high and he knows it's now or never, so he gets it out. Verse three, may the king live forever. Oh, why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, verse four, what is it you want? Imagine him, I think, brilliant, brilliant. He's asking what I want, brilliant. Oh, then he remembers. It's not about what I want. It's about what God wants. So do you see? Then I pray to the God of heaven. Isn't that striking? He's been praying for four months. And he doesn't think, well, I've done praying. Now's the time for action. Every step of the way, he depends on the Lord. I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. And the king agrees to send him. And I love how Nehemiah prayed with total confidence that his prayers would be answered. How do I know he prayed with total confidence? Because when the king grants him his request... He's not caught unaware. It's like, oh, I wasn't expecting the prayer to be actually answered. He's totally ready. The king says, well, what do you need for your journey? He goes, well, as it happens, uh, what I'll need is, and he whips out a list from his back pocket of all the things he'll need. Do you see verse seven? If it pleases the king, may I have uh, letters to the governors uh, governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And oh, may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he'll give me timber to make beams for the gate and so on, you see? He's been praying, but he's been planning as well. It's not one or the other, but his planning is built on prayer. And we read in verse 11, I went to Jerusalem. And and tucked behind those four words is a journey that would have taken about four months. And when he gets there, he rests for three days And then we read verse 12, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. And by night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem and so on. 
takes a, a few men with him and he sets out during the night to ride around the city to assess the work that needs doing. He's very canny. He doesn't tell anyone uh, what he's doing. He doesn't want rumors going around until the plan is finalized. And then he gets the officials together and says, verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I love the way he says, we, the trouble we are in. Let us rebuild and we will no longer be in disgrace. He might have said, you, the trouble you were in, the disgrace that you were in, because he wasn't in trouble. He was in Susa. He was in the palace. Striking, isn't it? When, When someone claims to be a member of your church and criticizes your church and says, you need to do something about that, you people. You know they're not really members of your church. Because members of God's family don't look at each other and go, you need to sort this out. They say, we. If there is a problem in our life together, it's our problem. We work it out together. And it's very beautiful how Nehemiah comes all this way from Susa and says, we're in this together. And he shares the plan. God's servant takes action. But did you notice how keen Nehemiah is to underline that it's not his little plan that he has cleverly hatched, that this is what God is doing? Verse 8, oh, back in, um, oh, where am I going? Verse 8, yeah, chapter 2, oh, right at the end. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. See, because, because the gracious hand of God was on me. This is what God is doing. Or verse 12, I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. Or verse 18, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me. This is what God is graciously doing. And then at the end of verse um, 19, these guys, uh, Sambalat and uh, the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, the guys who we're going to meet again, they are officials from the neighboring nations and they are very jumpy about the whole idea of the walls being rebuilt and they are out to cause trouble. And you see Nehemiah's response to them, verse 20, I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. So you see, Nehemiah takes action, but his action is in line with what God is doing. This is what God is graciously doing. God is keeping his promises, unfolding his plans to build up his people in Jerusalem to reach out to the world. He will do it. God will give us success. And you see their response? Verse 18, let us start rebuilding. See, if this is what God is doing, let's join in. God's servant takes action for the glory of God. I'm very struck by the action that Nehemiah takes. Because Susa was one of the four capitals of the Persian Empire. It was where kings went for the winter. It was kind of ancient south of France. 
And you read inscriptions about the huge palace that was built and the, the beautiful gardens and the extraordinary opulence. And Nehemiah leaves the comfort of Susa and travels a thousand miles on a long journey up each morning before first light to avoid traveling in the heat of the day. And a dangerous journey. What if he got sick? What if there were bandits? Four months through the desert to go to people who are broken. To build them up so that they would no longer be in disgrace. So that the Lord would not be dishonored. God's servant takes action for the glory of God. And that action is costly. And I'm very struck by that because we have been trained to to seek out comfort. And if I'm honest, that's why I'm not especially planning on going to the exhibition hall to look at the stalls that the various mission agencies have because I'm a little bit nervous of being cornered by the needs of some country that's a long way from home where it would be dangerous to be, I'm not sure how open I am to leaving the comfort of Bristol where I live and where I love. I'm not sure. That's why at the end of a long day, we we sometimes find it so hard to find the energy to open up the Bible and pray with the children and build them up. It's hard. It's costly. That's why we've been putting off the call to fix up to meet with the um, the member of our home group, who's, who's not always easy, but you know, they, they are drifting and they need encouragement. That's why when, when colleagues head off for a drink after work on a Friday, we, we know it would be good to be there with them, but oh, not if it means a late night. We don't really want to take action that costs us. But you see, God's servant can't just sit back in comfort and do nothing. God's servant takes action. For the glory of God, whatever the cost. Let's pull this together. What is the living God saying to his people through Nehemiah? What is he saying to us today? See, the danger is the preacher uses Nehemiah as a stick to beat the people with. You need to weep more. You need to pray more. You need to take more action. Yeah, we kind of do, but if all we do is grit our teeth and resolve to try harder to weep more, uh, pray more, take more action, how long will it last? Till about next Tuesday? You see, we, we don't have enough fuel in the tank of our hearts to make it last any longer. Friends, the Bible is not God wagging his finger at us, telling us what we should do. First and foremost, the Bible is God telling us what he is doing. And when you see what he is doing, that is what fills the tank of your heart with fuel. That, 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 that means you can weep and can pray and can take action even though it is costly for the glory of God. Because that becomes your joy. Think of the, the people in Jerusalem the king says, we can't build the wall. And they start to think, well, what about God's plans? 
And they start to wonder, what if the whole plan to restore Jerusalem and reach out to the world just comes to nothing? What if there never was a plan to restore Jerusalem and reach out to the world? What, what, what if our God isn't the one true God? What, what if he's not real? What if, what if we were kidding ourselves all along? And so they start to lose heart. You see, if we're not sure that God keeps his promises, it's very hard to join in with his plans. Rebuild these walls under attack from all these other nations? It's not worth it, is it? We've got, we've got better things to do with our lives. We, we have got box sets to watch. And then Nehemiah shows up. And you remember what he says in verse 18? I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me. He doesn't just show up. He says, the Lord's hand is on him. The Lord has sent him a thousand miles to tell you he keeps his promises. He has not given up on his plans. The story is not over. He wants us to rebuild the walls. Can you imagine the impact of that on the people in Jerusalem? Wow. We thought maybe God had given up on his plans. But he sends Nehemiah. God has not given up. God wants to rebuild this city. Let's get building. Do you see? And friends, we know more than they knew. Do you remember what Jesus says? And he's talking about the Old Testament and he says, these are the scriptures that testify to me. So all the leaders God sends to his people in the Old Testament all testify to him. To the leader whom God would send to build up his people so that through them, God would reach out to all nations. All nations across the world would honor him and praise him. And you're reading the Old Testament, you think, is that leader ever going to come? Is... Oh, and then you look at Jesus. He came. The God of the Bible keeps his promises. As God sent Nehemiah, God sent his son. Can you feel the impact of that? 95% of the people in Bristol, they're not Christians. Perhaps you're the only Christian in the place you work or the only Christian on the course that you study on and you see church buildings turned into flats and you think, what has happened? God's plan to build a people to reach out to the whole world. God's people seem to be in ruins. And you lose heart, don't you? You think, what is the point? Giving my life, giving my time, my money to a cause that is dying. As God sent Nehemiah, God sent his son. And through his son, he is gathering up a people who reach out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth to show the whole world that he alone is God. And you think, really? Yes. Where are we today? We're not in Jerusalem, are we? 
And yet here we are singing his praises, worshiping him as the one true God. Why? Because he has kept his promises. Because his plan is on track. And the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. See? And what that means is when we give ourselves to the cause of the gospel, we're not wasting our lives on some funny little plan. We are giving ourselves to what God, the great and awesome God, is doing. And on the days when it's hard, we're not just called to grit our teeth. We're called to fix our eyes on the leader he has sent. And as they looked to Nehemiah, we look to Jesus. And in him we find the fuel we need to keep going. God's servant weeps. Do you remember how Jesus wept over Jerusalem? How it broke his heart that people turned their backs on the Lord. And I think of all the people in my city, in my family, on my street, who have turned their backs on the Lord. Jesus weeps for them. As he wept for me. And when we see his tears, how can, how can we stay cool? God's servant prays. And we read of Jesus, Romans 8, so the right hand of God, praying for his people. We, we see his prayer in John 17, praying for his people to bring glory to the Father, praying for us. And there we are thinking, oh, what's the point in praying? He's probably not even listening. Not listening? He is leading our prayers. By his spirit, he is helping us to pray and he calls us to join in. And God's servant takes action. And Jesus leaves not just the comfort of a palace in Susa, but the throne room of heaven. And he goes on a journey to a broken world. And when he comes, he doesn't wag his finger and say, you better get your act together. You. He says, we. We, human beings. He comes as one of us and enters into our trouble and our disgrace. And he says, I have come to build the people of God. And he calls us to join in. And, and, and there we are holding back. I don't, want to really, I don't want to get out of my comfort zone. I, I don't want it to cost me. I don't want to give myself to building up my children or my neighbors or people in my home group. It's, it's, it's hard work. And, and then I look at him and see his commitment to build us into the people of God. That he reckoned we were worth laying down his life for. And it melts my heart. And it makes me pray, Lord, please give me a heart like yours. Show me. Show me how I can join in 
with what you are doing for the honor of your great name. Would that be my joy? Let's be quiet for a moment and then we'll pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for who you are and what you're like and what you've done. We marvel that you are the one who weeps, who prays, who who took costly action. And we, we pray that we would see more of who you are and, and that taking who you are into our hearts would, would change our hearts to, to love you more and to live for you more. And we pray that for the glory of your great name. Amen. This talk was recorded at Word Alive 2018. Word Alive is here to serve the church in reaching the world. Our desire is to resource individuals and churches and empower them in their mission to communities and the wider world. For further information and to hear more talks from this and previous events, please visit our website at wordaliveevent.org.